Thank you, Brandon, and thank you, children, um, the Iwana team, for helping us prepare for worship. That was magnificent. And welcome to all of you, and thank you, Amal, once again, for your generous investment of time with us this weekend, and um, we're looking forward to what God would have for us uh, in the future. And um, I, I must say, I'm quite overwhelmed with just a complete sense of unworthiness to stand and worship with this brother who is so committed to proclaiming the gospel in some of the most difficult and perilous places on the planet. And um, I, I want to pledge our faithfulness and prayer for you and your family, Amal, as you go and as you travel abroad. And um, we are, we're all unworthy of your presence today. Thank you for being here. If you have a copy of the scriptures this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. I'm so thankful for Pastor Brett who has led us faithfully these last few weeks in bringing us some challenging thoughts from the Word of God from this great epistle. Um, Paul's passionate letter to the believers at Philippi. And um, we are on solid ground here. And in no small way, and thanks to, to Brett for leading us these past several weeks. We're indebted to you, Brett, for your wonderful work in the Word of God. As we rounded out the last section of Philippians chapter 1, the word that the Apostle uses to complete this final section before chapter 2 begins is the word struggle. It's a word that is common to all in the human experience. Jesus said, in fact, in this world you will have many, what, struggles. If anything, Jesus is a realist. Uh, he never sugarcoated the, the harsh eventualities of, of living in this world. In fact, he prepared his disciples carefully and compellingly for what would be excruciating circumstances at times that would result from their allegiance to him. Struggle, that's the word. It's a great word. Agona, that's the word in the Greek. It means to strive against the pressure. It, it has to do with the race. He talks about a struggle at the end of Philippians chapter 1 that is shared. The struggle for the cause of the gospel. Many understand that struggle. The struggle to strive and to finish. At the end of his second letter to young Timothy, he said, I have finished, and he uses the same word, the struggle. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. That's the vision is that we finish the race, but that we do it together. Our life of faith is seen in the New Testament as a race, a struggle, a painful one at times, an agonizing press against the pressure. And in this setting, as Paul writes to these believers, it's a struggle that we share, like a relay we share in the race. We are all running together in the struggle. I recall as a kid not looking very much forward to church picnics or the annual school Olympics day because we were always compelled to run three-legged races. You remember those? Some of you probably ran those not too long ago. The idea is that you take four legs but you tie two together so that now you have three 
And um, the two legs become one, and together you attempt to coordinate, arms tucked around each other. Usually there was a really tall guy with a really short guy, or some sort of vice versa, opposite. And the idea was that you run toward the finish line and beat out the opponents. Inevitably, however, it's the coordination part that gets tricky. Not because the legs don't want to work together, they're, they're, they're involuntary. They are wholly dependent on the two minds that guide them to tell them what to do. And you see, the, the challenge in struggling together is that both have to be of the same mind. Thinking about the timing and the purpose and the commitment to stay together in order to overcome the struggle, which was to win the race. We need each other's legs, maybe. <laughs> But more important, we need each other's minds and hearts as we share in the struggle. If I insist on my way and you insist on your way, then we won't run together. In fact, we'll work against each other and ultimately we'll lose the race. Now back to this idea of the struggle. Some of you have struggled and struggled in agony and can give witness today to the power of someone right here in this congregation or in the body of Christ who shared in that with you. In fact, it would not hurt us at all to stand and give witness of how faithful God was in using someone who came alongside of you in the struggle, and we praise his name. Others of you are still in the midst of the struggle. Maybe it's an emotional struggle. Maybe that's your race. Or it might be a serious physical agony or struggle or a spiritual battle of doubt or fear that continues to debilitate you as you run the race. Maybe it's a secret battle that no one knows but you and God. Maybe some closest to you. It's kept you long bound and paralyzed for too long. But nonetheless, Paul is appealing to a certain emotional logic here. And this is what he says at the beginning of chapter 2. Listen to his words. If you have received any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Yes, has anyone here felt the encouragement and comfort of Christ? And I just want to ask that question out to all of you this morning. Just rewind the tape on your month, or maybe the last six months, or just rewind the tape maybe on your year. Has anyone here experienced the encouragement and comfort of Christ? <laughs> of course you have. He goes on to ask, has anyone felt the burning, surrounding love of Christ in that struggle? Have you felt his profound presence and loving support and care and encouragement in your life? Anyone felt that? Of course. Has anyone kind of felt or benefited from the warm fellowship of his people during your trial or during your time of need? I know that you have. 
If you have at any point received this goodness from Christ, at any point in this struggle, Paul says, then complete the joyful work by being of the same mind, the same love, the same purpose. Not the same collectively, but the same as Christ. The same which we are to embrace is not that your mind somehow sync up with my mind and your passion and your purpose and your preferences and, and your agenda somehow sync up with mine. No, that, that's not the sameness that's in view here. But that our love and our mindset and our purposes join together in that they are one with His. With Christ. Your love, your mind, my mind, my love, your purpose, my purpose should be the same as that of his, Christ. That we embrace a love that endures all things. The kind of love that pours grace and kindness on our enemies. A love that endures all things, hopes all things, sacrifices freely and selflessly, pursuing Forgiving quickly and comprehensively. A love that touches the untouchable. Who goes into the lives of people who are very different than we are. Who runs great risk. The kind of purpose that looks like surrendering all earthly ambitions, comforts, and goals to follow and accomplish the will of God. That's the oneness. That's the sameness we embrace. If we have reached any of these benefits from Christ in our struggle, his encouragement, his comfort, his tenderness, his compassion, then that's how we win the agonal. That's how we win the race. That's how we share and endure the struggle. And Paul says... Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, the question is not the proverbial question, well, that sounds great, but what does that look like? That's not the question. We, we know that answer. That's easy. It looks, like, it looks like Jesus. It looks like Peter. It looks like John. It looks like Jenny Wilson. It looks like Amal. It looks like people who are spread across the globe. Others who follow Christ at great cost and endure the struggle. It looks like all the people we pray fervently for who are struggling around the world for the gospel, unknown, unsung, in pain, in chains, in peril of persecution and death. Oh, we know what it looks like. And we celebrate it. We're inspired and convicted by such examples. We don't don't need that question answered. What does it look like? Here's the question that needs to be answered. How is it possible that's the question. That's the answer I need to know. Because I, I see what it looks like. I'm challenged by it. I'm convicted by it as I stood in praise and worship next to our brother Amal. I, I know what it looks like. We've seen it. My question is, 
How does it happen? What makes it possible to live that kind of life? To resign from this relentless pursuit and appetite to worship self and comfort and to preserve all things secure and good and lay it all down for Christ. That's what I want to know. I want to know how is it possible in me? And that's what Paul gives us in Philippians 2. Watch what he says. In your relationships with one another, let this mind have this mindset that was also in Christ Jesus. Listen. This has to do with your mind. This is a decision of the will. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Watch this. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing By taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here is where the apostle in this great section is starting to answer the question, not this is what it looks like, certainly that's it, it's it's embodied in the person and work, sacrifice, death and resurrection of Jesus, but this this is how it's possible. It begins with a full and total obedience and surrender to the will of God. It was the will of the Father that Jesus leave the wonder, the comfort, the splendor and glory of his presence in heaven and let loose of the grasp of it. Oh man, did you know, just read John 1. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Who's that Word? That Word was Jesus. Do you know that Jesus was in the beginning? He was long before the beginning, but for our context, this, this gracious apostle wanted us to know that at the very beginning, Genesis 1, Jesus was there in the beginning. And then Paul writes later in Colossians that in him all things, all things were made. In Jesus, he was there at creation. In fact, it was by his hand that all things were spoken to existence. He was there and he holds all things together by the word of his power. This is Jesus. That was his place. That was his context. That was his comfort. That was his zone. That was Jesus. That's where he existed. But yet... He did not consider any of that worth clinging to. Now just think about your zone. (laughs) Your sweet spot, where you're most comfortable. Your place. Your, your, Your palace. Your experience, your family, your whatever, whatever's your zone, your routine. Anything there worth 
clinging to? Oh, man. You can't dare answer no because the evidence is so plain and abundant that, of course, I mean, we build our whole lives around holding that stuff. Everything is about preserving and holding and clinging to all of that. Everything, our whole earthly existence, it seems. So how is it possible? Not what does it look like. We see it all around us. That's not the question. The question is, how is it possible that we're able to let go of all of that in order to lay down our lives for this, this, this king? Well, the answer is, it's not possible. Unless you're God. (laughs) Unless you're pre-incarnate Christ. Unless you're the second person of the Trinity. It's not possible. You can't do it. How do I know that? I'm not not making this up. It's, It's right here in the book. He, verse 7 made himself nothing. See, God can do that. God can empty himself of all these things. He's God. He made himself nothing and then took on the very nature of a servant. Do you know what that word is? We lose it in the English. It's a great word. Morphe. It means means to, to morph. He transformed himself. He morphed. (laughs) Can you morph? Can you do that? You can't. He can and he could. That's how it was possible for him because he's God. But you can't do it. So guess what? You have to be transformed. He transformed himself. He emptied himself of all of those things that were worthy of being... You can't do it, so he has to do it for you. He has to transform you in order for it to be possible. (laughs) He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. You see, for you and me to leave the shackles of of being human, to move beyond this irresistible power of worshiping self, clinging to comfort, security, worship of self, we can't do it. We need to more. We, we, We need that transformative power to come from him. That takes transformation because left to ourselves, listen, the word is out and it's plain. We're going back to comfort. We're going to run back to rights. We're going to cling to the worship of our quiet, peaceful, kind of family-coded Christian experience that justifies this delusion and keeps us feeling good about ourselves but allows us to keep our options open. That's what we're capable of doing, see? We want to to keep our our options open. We want to keep our plans and our purposes in our control, not his. We want to keep our summer and weekends wide open. Because that's our zone. That's where we're comfortable. 
Um, this gives us permission to pretty much do anything and act any way we like, no matter how selfish, self-serving, petty, or powerless. No, see, the vision of Philippians is transformation. God can do it. He's God. He, he transformed himself. He, he left all of that, and he took on the form of flesh. He, he became a servant. He made himself a servant. We cannot do that. We have to be transformed. You and I cannot transform ourselves. We don't even desire it. We like being bound. Remember the scripture says later in the New Testament, we actually love darkness. We enjoy the debilitating paralysis of kind of trying to control everything in our lives. Brett has helped us see that. We willing, he willingly transformed himself so that we could have the hope of transformation. That's what Philippians 2 is about. He became sin who knew no sin. Here's the word. That we might, guess what the word is? Anybody want to tell me? You've learned a little Greek this morning. So that we might what? Morph. That we might become the righteousness of God. He does it. That's how it's possible. He transforms you. He transforms me. He makes it possible for me to let go of those things that I hold so tightly and that I so desire to cling to in order that I might be transformed. Do you know what Ephesians said? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you were so dead in your sins. You were flatlined spiritually. That God had to make you alive. Guess what the word is? He had to morph you. He had to transform you from death to life. He does that. You can't do it. Praise his name. He's got the power and he's got the will and the desire to do it. Jesus enters humbly on that magnificent day that we now celebrate, unpretentiously riding on an animal. He willingly carried his, allowed to be carried into the place of his sacrifice to provide the ultimate service to those who would call him king, to be the king and ruler of my life. He willingly became the obedient servant and laid down his life. I can't do that, and neither can you. It has to be formed within us by his gracious spirit. It takes transformation. That's why he says, let this mind be in you. That was also in Christ Jesus. It's just death to self. Let this mind be in you when you are in that conversation or in that meeting. And because of the transformative work of Christ in your life, you quite easily and graciously lay down your rights and your agenda and defer to another. That's power. That's transformation. Let this mind be in you when you are so strongly determined to preserve your place of comfort or your rightful consideration, your viewpoint, your lifestyle. Let this mind be in you when you begin your day the way you always choose and desire to, bring, to begin your day, but rather because of the transformative work of Christ in your life. You give him first dibs on that choice time that belongs to him, submitting yourself willingly and humbly to his gracious spirit. Let this mind be in you when you are in the struggle, as some of you are, 
tempted to lash out against God, questioning His goodness and His ways. Let this mind be in you when you are so desiring to make things right in someone else's life when you know there is plenty glaringly wrong in your own. Let this mind be in you when you are in conflict with your brother or your mate or you are challenged by your enemy because of the transformative power of Christ in you. You can easily and graciously take the humble position, stand down, and do not demand your way, but rather give way. to the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, in all of you, in all of us, in you, and in you, and in you, and in you. Let this mind be in you, and in you, and in you, and in me, and let this mind be in you, and let this mind be in you, and in you, and in me, and in you, and in all of you which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was God, who had everything to lose, he let go it all. He transformed himself because he knew you couldn't do anything for yourself. He made himself flesh. He became a man. He became so obedient that he was willing to die on the cross for you. He paid the penalty for your sin. He shed his blood. He made a way for you to be made right with God so that you could be new. That's not only what it looks like. It's how it's possible for you to live that kind of life. Like most physicians of great experience and renown, Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane had become preoccupied with one particular facet of his practice of medicine. His strong feelings concerned the use of general anesthesia in major surgery. He believed that most major operations could and should be performed under local anesthetic. In his opinion, the hazards of a general um, anesthesia outweighed the risks of surgery itself. That was his conviction. For example, Kane cited a surgical candidate who had a history of heart trouble, and in some cases a surgeon may be reticent to operate, fearing the effects of the anesthesia on the heart of the patient. And some patients with specific anesthesia allergies never awakened. And Kane's personal medical mission was to prove to his colleagues once for all the viability of local anesthesia. And it would take a great deal of convincing, obviously. Many patients were understandably squeamish at the thought of being awake during surgery. Others feared the possibility of the anesthesia wearing off in the middle of the surgery. To break down these psychological barriers, Cain would have to find a willing um, individual, courageous and convinced enough on their own to be a candidate for this type of surgery, willing to accept local anesthesia to prove his point. 37 years in the medical field, Cain had performed nearly 4,000 appendectomies. <clears throat> that, I, that's, that's a lot, isn't it? Seems like a lot. 
So this next appendectomy, appendectomy would be routine in every way except one. Dr. Kane's patient would remain awake through the entire surgical procedure, yet under local anesthesia. He found a person who was willing to do it. So the operation was scheduled for a Tuesday morning. The patient, though anxious and still a bit <clears throat> concerned, was prepped, wheeled into the operating room, and the local anesthesia was administered. Kane began, as he had thousands of times before, patiently, carefully dissecting superficial tissues, clamping off blood vessels on his way in, locating the appendix. Sixty-year-old uh, 60 surgeon deftly pulled it up, excised it, bent the stump underneath, and through it all, the patient experienced only minor discomfort, and the operation concluded successfully. The patient actually rested well that night. In fact, the following day, his recovery was said to have progressed better than most post-operative patients. Two days later, the patient was released from the hospital to recuperate at home. So Cain felt he had proved his point, at least in this regard. that The risks of general anesthesia could be avoided in some, if not most, major operations. Potential of local anesthesia had been fully realized thanks to the example of an innovative doctor and one brave volunteer. This took place in 1921. Dr. Kane and the patient who had volunteered had a great deal in common because they were the same man. Dr. Kane, to prove the viability of local anesthesia, had operated on himself successfully. It's a true story. So, before you start looking around, you think this is this is all good. And I know, you know, I know someone who needs this. How about we do a little self-surgery? Before we start looking down the pew, <laughs> or running through your Rolodex, just, just maybe consider the level of your willingness to willingly submit to what God might be saying to you. Or maybe as he speaks to you about your marriage, you know, maybe you're at wit's end, maybe you think you're at the end, maybe it's just, it's irreconcilable differences. She just absolutely, she just absolutely will not give in. Well, somebody needs to stand down. And how about you, mom and dad? What if your teenager comes to you and says, I really believe Christ has called me to another level of faithfulness to him. 
I don't want to spend all of my living days and moments trying to be the best whatever. I, I want to serve Christ. I, I, I want to give my life to him. What if Christ has done that work in them? And they're, re- they're ready to submit to him, to make him king. Or what if, what if, guys, what if, what if your, 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 your wife comes to you and says, babe, I've been in the word, I've met the Savior, and he's talked to me about this stuff. I don't need all this. I don't need this bigger place. I don't need this. I don't need, just think what we could do if we didn't have all this. I, I, feel, I feel the Lord is speaking to me about doing something different. Are you ready to make him king over that too? You see, that's how it's possible. When he does that work in us, it's his power that allows me and you and your family and your children, all of us, to just lay down all of that for him. That's how it's possible. Lord, (laughs) do this work in me. Remove, restore, renew, replace. Do this work in me. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. My brother Amal has been given the charge to train leaders. And I know he's going to know what I mean by this next statement. The church doesn't need any more leaders. We need followers. We need young men and young women, whole families, retired men, retired women, physicians, lawyers, doctors, businessmen and women. We need people who are willing to say, yes, I will follow him. no matter what the cost. And let him make you into whatever he desires you to be. Are you ready to follow the king? Are you ready to become obedient to the point of death? Apart from what Christ has done for you, that is not even possible.
but he will transform you. And if you're a teenager or a young person here this morning and you just can't even imagine the conversation with your parents because you're going to say, listen, thank you for your love, thank you for your passion for my life, but I have received a call from Jesus Christ and I'm laying it all down to follow him. I want you to know that in the power of Christ, he will transform them too and make a way for you. And may your tribe increase for the praise and glory of his name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, do this work in me, in all of us, for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of the proclamation of your gospel both here and around the world, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord, for the praise and glory of his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.